Well, Father, you do reign on high. You are majestic. You are sovereign. You are holy. And we come together this morning to acknowledge that as your people in this local congregation called LifePoint, Father, to lift up the name of your Son, Jesus, to exalt you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to rejoice in you, Lord, our triune God, who reigns over the nations and over the heavens. And so we come and rightfully bring you our worship, our praise, our adoration. And our hope, Lord God, is that in our giving, we would also receive and that we would know more of you, that you would teach us, Lord God, that you would make yourself known to us here. And not just to us, Lord God, but to our friends, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to those who are gathered today in other locations right here in Indianapolis and all the way to the othermost parts of the world. Lord, that you would be showing yourself to your people, to your church, that you would be adding your blessing to us as we gather in corporate worship. Father, that we might know you, that we might be found in you. Lord God, that we would be taught and trained and equipped and rebuked, chastised, Lord God, if we need to be chastised. And then rebuilt and redeemed and reformed by you. And so we rejoice, Lord God, in your son Jesus, who lived, who died, who rose again, who reigns at your right hand forever and ever, who's interceding on our behalf even now as we are gathered together for worship. We rejoice, Lord God, that in Christ we might know you and might know hope and life. And so, Father, would you make that plain to us today and to your church? We commend ourselves. We commend your church to you today. We pray, Father, that you would be gracious as well to our missionaries, and we are thankful for them and for the work that they are doing on behalf of the gospel, on behalf of this local congregation. And so we ask, God, that you would come alongside them and be gracious to them and minister to them in their work, in their gospel preaching, in their serving, in their caring, in their ministering to the needs of others. We pray today specifically for Shepherd Community, Lord God, and we rejoice in our partnership with them and the work that they're doing right here on the east side of Indianapolis and engaging with our neighbors and caring for them, many of them the poorest of the poor, and teaching them, Father, and educating them and engaging with them and and sharing with them their resources and meeting needs We pray, God, for that ministry. We pray for Jay Height and for many, many, many volunteers that come alongside he and his wife and others who engage in that ministry and have for so many years. We pray that you would make that ministry fruitful, Lord God, that you would bring along additional teachers for their school, additional volunteers for their food pantry, those who will go out and meet needs of people in their own homes who cannot come to them. And so, Father, we pray that you would be gracious to them. Meet them even today in their gathered worship there at Shepherd Community. Pour out your spirit there, Lord God. And bless that ministry abundantly, we pray. And help us, Lord God, to be a blessing to them as well. So we commend them to you today, Lord God. Pray that you would be gracious to them and to all of our missionaries. And we pray that you would meet us now as we open up your word. Father, teach us through this passage in Habakkuk's prophecy. Teach us, Lord God. Equip us, train us, teach us 
Help us to apply your word, Lord God, today. A difficult word we're about to hear. A direct word that we're about to hear. Lord, help us to be mindful of that and to put it into practice. I pray that you would do these good things on our behalf, Lord God, as we worship you, as we come before you this morning. We do it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. Well, by now, in this section of Habakkuk's prophecy, we've heard four taunts or four woes. I called them woes last week. They are, in essence, a taunt. The translation means literally a taunt, a taunt from God the Father to the people of Babylon. And these four taunts or these four woes have been kind of hung like an ill omen on the necks of the Babylonians. Each one of these woes, each one of these taunts threaten ultimate humiliation and defeat for the Babylonians. The first four woes tell us that the plunderers will be plundered and that the extortioners will have to answer when God cries out to Him on behalf of these people who have been extorted by the Babylonians and by others as well. That the prideful will be humbled and they will be shown for what they are. They will be shown to be the slaves that they are and that we all are. And that the violent and the sadistic will be violated themselves. That God will rain upon them the violence that they have rained upon other people. And so now today, this final woe is leveled against the people who will ultimately bring humiliation on God's people, on the people of Judah, on the Israelites. They will be humbled because of their violence, because of their pride, because of their extorting others, both amongst their own people and the nations. They will come under God's judgment And those who God will use to bring them under judgment will also come under judgment because they are no better. In fact, they may be even worse from a human perspective than the people of Judah themselves. And so now a final woe or a final taunt is leveled against these Babylonians. Their idolatry has not gone unnoticed by God. He has seen their idolatry. He has seen their wickedness. And no power in heaven or on earth, we will see, can stand before the blazing glory of the God who exists, the God who reigns, the God who is on His throne. All nations, all people who resort to idolatry, who resort to these tactics, will know the wrath of God. They will know the judgment of God that will come upon them. God is the only one who exists in reality, who has existence in and of Himself. And so our call today, friends, at the end of our text will simply be to tear down the altars in our own lives, to not project all of this on the Babylonians 2,500 years ago and say, yeah, they're going to get theirs, right? Their comeuppance is coming. God is going to defeat them. But to see in our own lives, our own idolatry, and to begin the difficult process with God's help of tearing down those idols in our lives and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and exalting in Jesus Christ in our lives. And we're going to do that by looking at the text from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. We'll bring to a conclusion 
Habakkuk chapter 2. Next week, the clouds will begin to part, the sun will rise, and we'll go into Habakkuk chapter 3, and we'll see how God begins to, to care for and minister to Habakkuk, and I think ultimately for all those who trust in Him. But today, we learn about idolatry. And we take these five woes that God has given to us and we broke them down four and one. And I did that simply because this one, I think, speaks very clearly to us in our own day. And I hope you'll see that as we walk through this text. Habakkuk chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 18 and we're going to read to the end of the chapter to verse 20. Habakkuk is in the Old Testament. It is part of the minor prophets there. Not an easy one to find, as I've said over the last few weeks if you go towards the end of your Old Testament, which is about three-quarters of the way through the Bible, and take a left turn, you'll start rummaging through the minor prophets, and you'll come across Habakkuk. As always, we've also just got it on the screen for you as well, if that's how you prefer to read it. But let's stand together. Let's honor God in the reading of His Word today. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting at verse 18. This is the Word of the Lord. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. And so we see that the gods of this age are helpless, that the idols that we construct are helpless, that idolatry is profitless. Our idols are gods created in our own image, friends. They are a projection of ourselves as the ruler of our own lives. And so when we establish our own idols, when we establish ourselves and place ourselves on the throne, and say, all things will come through us, and we'll determine these things, and we will figure these things out, and we will right the wrongs, and we will, we will fix what's ailing us and our world. And as we establish these idols in our own lives and a hundred other idols in our lives, we must come to the understanding that they are simply a projection of ourselves. They make ourselves gods, small g. It's a trusting in our own creation. We should be wiser, we should know better, but our thoughts get clouded and we begin to believe the lies that we're projecting on ourselves and the things that we're telling ourselves. As the Babylonians believed the lie that they would last forever, that their kingdom could not fall, that all nations would bow in subjection to them. But we see that that's just not true. Isaiah chapter 44, another one of God's prophets, and there God speaking through Isaiah speaks of the fruitlessness and the, honestly the silliness of idolatry. And here it speaks of fashioning idols. And I think we tend to think, well, we don't fashion idols in America anymore. You know, we're not building idols. We're not falling down and worshiping these things. But in Isaiah chapter 44, God speaks of the uselessness of this. He he tells the story of a man who goes out into the forest, and there he picks out a tree, and he cuts down the tree, and he brings it back to his home. And there he separates the tree out. He cuts it into sections. And in the process of cutting the tree into sections, he grows 
tired and he grows hungry. And therefore, he takes a section of the wood that he has cut apart and he builds himself a fire. And by that fire, he warms himself and then he bakes bread over it and he feeds himself and he is nourished by that. And then when he's done that, he goes to the other section of the tree and there he fashions out an idol for himself out of wood. And he sets the idol up and then he bows down before the idol and he says, deliver me because you are my God. God goes on to say, does the man not know? Can he not fathom in his own mind that with half of the tree he baked bread and warmed himself and with the other half he has fashioned for himself a God? The fruitlessness of it, the, 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 the silliness of it is laid bare before us and before the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. I've quoted before one of my favorite passages from Jeremiah that speaks of idolatry and the idols that we form for ourselves, that they are like a scarecrow in a melon patch. We build them, but they cannot speak, they cannot, they cannot harm us, they cannot do anything good for us. And therefore, we see the fruitlessness of all idolatry. Bring it now into a New Testament context. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Romans, indicates that, quite frankly, in their day and on our day, although there may be some forms of idolatry that is graven images, that still exists in our world today. But it is more about the worship of ourselves. It is the worship of who we are. It is placing ourselves on the throne. And therefore, Paul says to the Romans, claiming to be wise, we become fools, and we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gives us up to the lusts of our hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of our bodies among ourselves, because we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we exchange and we, we worship what is created rather than the Creator Himself, Paul says, who is forever to be praised. And he caps it off by saying, let this be written. He does that with one word, amen. Let it be written. This is the foolishness of humankind. We've either fashioned for ourselves idols or we've made ourselves demigods. We have made ourselves gods with a small g. And we've trusted in ourselves, and we've decided that we can make our own decisions. We can figure all of these things out. What we do is right and justifiable. And in our culture today, we are seeing Romans 1 played out in technicolor. Because not only are we doing it ourselves, but we are demanding that others do it with us and we are approving of it when they do that, and we're asking for them to approve of it as well, to celebrate it as well. This is who we've become. And we have a tendency to look back into the day of Habakkuk and into the day of the Babylonians and say, well, you know, it's a pre-modern people. Of course they've got idols, and of course that's silly. We know better. And the question is, is do we know better? I have to admit, sometimes I don't know better. Sometimes I fashion for myself heart idols. 
Sometimes I find them very difficult to move past. And sometimes I find myself acquiescing to them. And sometimes I find myself, dare I even say it, honoring them and worshiping them. And I suspect if we were honest with ourselves, we'd say we find ourselves doing that as well. We find that we've allowed a root of bitterness to grow in our lives and in our hearts, right? Somebody owes us something. Somebody owes me an apology. And I'm not going to go to them because I'm in the right and they're in the wrong. Have you ever noticed that we always tend to be in the right and everybody else tends to be in the wrong? And look, here's the fact of the matter, just to be perfectly blunt about it. Sometimes other people are wrong and we are right. But we fashion this idol of bitterness, and we hold on to it, and we nurture it. And we're not going to obey what the Scriptures say to go to a brother or sister in Christ and to do everything we can to live at peace with them, and to maybe confess our own sin that may have led to this break. And so the bitterness grows, and it grows, and it grows. And it's not an idol, it's, it's justified. Because we're right and they're wrong, and they owe us an apology. They, they should come to us, and therefore, this idea of placing our offering aside, the Scriptures tell us, Jesus tells us, and then going and making amends with somebody to the best of our ability is set aside, and we nurture the root of bitterness, don't we? And here's the thing about bitterness. It doesn't grow up. Where does it grow? Bitterness grows down deep, doesn't it? It becomes a root. And once it gets deep, man, I'm telling you, it is hard to get it up, isn't it? It's hard to just root it back up again. It's become an idol. And we don't like it. It feels kind of nasty. And yet, still feels kind of good, doesn't it? Because somebody owes us something. And it feels good to be owed. It feels good to know that somebody owes us an apology. It it feels good to know that we're holding off on reconciliation until they do their part. But it's not idolatry. It's the right thing for us to do. We tell ourselves over and over and over again. We make our work our God, some of us. We make our sports our God, a team that's playing somewhere way off in another city can ruin our day because they didn't play the way they should really play. Or we establish a sporting domain for our children and we demand that they play well enough that they get the scholarships that we're hoping for. We honor our money among, uh, above our God. We establish our accounts and we trust in them. We don't know what we would do without them. We establish fantasy lives. What would it be like if I was married to somebody else? What would it be like if I was a part of a different family? What would it be like if my dirty, rotten boss was not my boss and I was his or her boss? How might I make them submit to me? How might I humiliate them? What would life be like if I were wealthy? What if I were a king or a queen? What if I could make all the decisions? 
And for some of us, that fantasy life builds and builds and builds until the fantasy life doesn't fix it for us anymore. We've got to step over into real life, right? Now we've got to really find out what it's like to live that life outside of that domain, outside of the restrictions that God has placed on us that are so um, weighty to us, that hold us down. And quite frankly, it's just not right. We really should be able to do whatever we want to do. And then the thinking goes on and on and on. Friends, understand that this is idolatry. We're establishing idols in our lives. We're establishing idols in our hearts. And they're speaking to us through our own minds. And they have a voice that sounds very, very familiar to us. And they speak to us. And we, we honor them. And we nurture them. And we care for them. Because in some sense, we love them. And we don't know what we would do actually without them. And so to ask God to actually root them out of our lives is really a, a huge, huge ask. Because then where would we go for our comfort? Where would we go for, for what makes us feel important and better about ourselves? Now, some of this you'll say, that doesn't describe me. Thank God it doesn't describe you. They don't all describe me either. But some of them do. I've never carved an idol in my life, friends. I've never established anything. Come into my house. You'll see nothing that we have set up on an altar and asked people to, to light a candle to and, and bow to. But in my life, over 58 years, friends, I have established idols, heart idols, that are hard to tear down. Impossible, some of them, without the work of Christ in my life. And so it is, I suspect, for you as well. And don't think that God doesn't see it. Now listen, for those of you who know Christ, don't think that God doesn't care about that and isn't willing to help and isn't reaching out to us that we might tear down these idols in our lives. But to those who refuse, God says woe to you. God says woe to us who chase idols, you, me, all people. Because at best, our idols are frivolous, friends. They can't help us. Your fantasy world is just that. It's a fantasy world. It cannot help you. The idols will not bring happiness to you or to me. They're powerless to do so. It's not that they don't want to. It's that they can't. They don't have the power to do that. And so our idols at best are frivolous. They're useless. As God says through Habakkuk, they are profitless. They will bring you no good. But at worst, now hear me here as we get deep, at worst our idols are demons, friends. They're part of the spiritual realm. They're not nothing, they're something. And they exist. And there are demons behind them. And it's very, very serious business. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, God says this to His people, that my people provoke me to anger by making sacrifices to demons which are not God's, small g. They forsook the rock that is their God 
and exchanged him for abominations. Friends, the Israelites were not just worshiping other gods, they were worshiping demons. In Habakkuk's day, the Babylonians were not just worshiping carved idols, those are nothing, they're just wood or metal or stone. They were worshiping demons, whether they knew it or not. They were involved in the satanic realm. Elijah on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings chapter 18, many of us who have read the Old Testament, we remember that story. It's a wonderful story of God's triumph, isn't it? Elijah the prophet, God comes to him and says, today you will present yourself to King Ahab after not presenting himself to Ahab for many years. And so he presents himself to King Ahab and he says, gather together all of your prophets, all of the prophets of Baal, the God of the Canaanites that many of the Israelites were worshiping. Over 450 of these prophets assembled themselves on Mount Carmel, along with prophets of some of the other lesser deities that the Israelites were worshiping. Elijah says, bring them to Mount Carmel, and then we will choose two to oxen, and they will call upon their gods to show up with fire, and I will call upon the living God to show up with fire. And the God who responds with fire, he's God. How long, he says, will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, worship him. But if these gods are gods, worship them. Be smart about this, is what he's saying. Worship the God who really exists. And we'll find out today, he says, who really exists. And so the prophets of Baal, and friends, this is no minor deity. This is the God of the universe for most of the known world at that time. Baal is the big boy on the block amongst all the gods and goddesses. And so the prophets of Baal, they cut themselves with their swords, and they take their their spears and their lances, and they draw their own blood, and they cry out in a frenzy to their God. But this demon has no power, and he cannot respond. And they cry out again and again, and they begin dancing before their God and cutting themselves either even deeper and letting the blood flow even more. And Elijah's watching, and he begins a taunt. Cut yourselves deeper. Dance more. Maybe your God is on vacation. Maybe he's indisposed, taking care of private matters. Keep cutting yourselves and crying out to your God, and they do it all the way till noon, and then they're exhausted. And then Elijah says, take the offering and cover it with water. Now cover it again. Now cover it again with water. And Elijah cries out to the living God, and God responds with fire and consumes not only the offering, but licks up all the water in the trough and destroys all of the canister around it, holding the idol. And what do the people of Israel do now? Now they wake up, and now they say, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God, they chant. This is real stuff, friends. There's something behind these these chants. One is a real God, the real God. The other are demons who who cannot 
demonstrate their power in the presence of the living God. And therefore, they're mute. They're speechless. Cut yourself as deep as you want. Establish the altar as high as you want to establish or as low as you want it to go. It cannot help you. It will not fix your problems. It cannot solve your deepest needs in your lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writing to the Corinthians, what do I imply then, he says, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, he says, idols are nothing. And you think he'd stop there, but he doesn't. What does he do? He tells us what an idol actually is. The idol, the wood, the metal, the stone is nothing. But then he tells us what's behind it. No, I do not imply that an idol is anything. What I imply is that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to gods. They offer these to demons and not to God. Friends, we're not offering ourselves up to nothing when we establish the idols in our lives. We're bowing down to something that is not God, and it's not nothing. It is something. It just isn't the God that we claim to worship. Listen, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and Moses was on Mount Sinai and the people began to wonder where he was, assuming he was dead, and they called out to his brother Aaron, make for us a God. They weren't saying, we don't believe in God. They're saying, we need to see this God. Moses had become a God to them and they couldn't see him. And so they needed something to see. And so what does Aaron do? He says, bring me your gold and your silver. And he fashions a God for them. And then he holds it up to them, a calf God, and says, here is your God, Israel. He's led you out of Egypt. Friends, the people weren't saying, now we reject God, Yahweh, and now we're going to follow this graven image. No. They're saying, we're still worshiping God. We're just worshiping Him through this idol, right? They haven't totally rejected God. They've just simply said, we keep God there We just need something more tangible. Now take this and bring it into our world. How often do we do that, right? I'm still worshiping God. I just need something more tangible. (laughs) I just need something that I can get my hands on. I need something that I can manipulate and build for myself. But God can take a seat at the table. He just can't take the seat at the head of the table anymore because I've got to take that seat. I've got to control these things for myself. Friends, it's idolatry. It's idolatry when we do these things. We pursue these idols in our lives, friends. We pursue them, and eventually we catch up with them, right? We pursue this lifestyle, and we eventually catch up with that lifestyle, right? The fantasies won't work anymore. We pursue them and pursue them until they just don't work anymore. And then we have to pursue something in the flesh. We have to go after it in the flesh because it just doesn't fix what we need anymore. And so we pursue our idols and our gods, and eventually as we pursue them, we catch up with them And then the Bible tells us we become like them. 
This is what the psalmist says here in Psalm 135. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And this is real. This is true. We pursue these things until they have gotten a hold of us, right? We're no longer pursuing them. They got us, and we have to have them. We have to live the life we want to live. We have to do the things we want to do. God has to give way. And if that means we have to change the language of Scripture to make it happen, by golly, we'll do it. What God says is wrong, we will declare to be right. And if we have to manipulate the text, we'll manipulate the text to make it say so. But we're going to get what we want. Friends, this is called idolatry. It's called covetousness. And it's really no different than what the Babylonians were doing. And we look at this, many of us, and we laugh and we scorn and we say we're educated modern people. None of us here expect special powers from inanimate objects. Or do we? (laughs) Friends, I spent most of my growing up days going to worship and walking into a cathedral with statues all over the cathedral with candles burning in front of them, and with my parents and others telling me, it's not idolatry. We're actually worshiping God, but you would do well to light a candle before this statue, and you would do better if you were to kneel down in front of it and pray as well. We're not as modern as we think we are. We're not as smart as we think we are, and we may not do that either. We don't do it at life point. But trust me, friends, when I walked in this door today, an idol and idols came into this sanctuary. And when you walked into this door today, idols and idolatry entered into the sanctuary. We hide them well, but they are there. They exist. And don't think that God does not see it. Friends, besides the foolishness of the idea that there is no God... The great sin of atheism is the idolatry of humanity. It is the idolatry of the natural processes by which we think we came about. If there is no God, then what shall we worship? Well, we don't worship anything, atheists say. Wrong. We're all worshiping something, friends. We're worshiping us. We're worshiping humanity and what humanity might become one day, right? We will conquer the heavens one day, friends. We will put people on the stars. We will put people on other planets. We will colonize Mars. Not just the earth will be ours to conquer, but the heavens will be ours to conquer. And so the story goes. And we don't worship any God. And yet we've taken one man, so many, and placed him on an altar and said, this man in the mid-1850s came up with the final, the final clue for us so that we can eliminate God and say, we're here by chance. And what a lucky chance it was. And here we are. We're the, we're the gods of our own world. And we'll determine where this world goes. And God will have no say in that. 
And we will elevate this man or men or women now who tell us that this is how things are done and how we came about. And we will dismantle God and we will elevate them. And we will make idols of these things. And we will declare that they are true. But God has contrasted himself with the idols of our world in our text today. He's contrasted himself with the idols in this closing sequence in his woe against Babylon, where the idols of men are crafted by men, either physically or mentally or via self-worship or lifting up finite things and declaring them to be infinite. The Lord God is in his temple and he is reigning on high. As we establish false gods, the true God is reigning. These gods are mute, but God speaks. Verse 18 tells us that our idols are carvings of, of a carver. They are the design of a designer. And if we take the text literally, they are dumb dummies. They have no power except the power that we give them. And those who choose their idols in place of the living God choose what is mute and powerless over the God who is and the God who speaks, the God who has existence in Himself. Friends, keep in mind all of us, you, me, Charles Darwin, and everybody who's ever lived, we're derivative. So is the sun, so is the moon, so are all the planets, so are all the stars, so are the quasars, so are the black holes. So is the depths of the ocean. Everything is derivative. It all comes from something. It comes from a great creator. And where does the great creator come? Try to wrap your mind around this one. He's always existed. Why? Because he has existence in himself. This is why when Moses said, tell me your name, God said, I am. I exist. That's who I am. I exist and everything else exists because God exists. Everything's derivative. Everybody you've ever met is derivative, and so are you. This is why you will die one day. This is why you are finite, but God is infinite, and the contrast becomes clear with the language that the Bible uses for idols and for God, not not across the spectrum. There are different words that are used at different times. In fact, in our text today, the term for idol is a different word than what I'm going to talk about here because it's talking specifically about carved images. But the idea of an idol that has an existence that, that lives and we believe lives, the Bible uses the word hevel in the Hebrew. And you don't need to know the word, but you would do well to know what the word means. It means an idol or a breath. It means vanity. Maybe you've read Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless, an enigma, an enigma. That's that word, hevel. It's used for a breath. It's for a last breath. It's the, it's a breath that's there and is gone. It is inconsequential. It has virtually nothing in itself. That's the word that the Scriptures will use for the idols of our heart, for the idols that we construct. The word used for the glory of God is the word kavod, and the word kavod means glorious. It means weighty. It means substantial. It means it has depth in and of itself. And so the verbiage itself tells us that the nations are, are chasing after the wind, and those who seek God are seeking that which has depth and meaning 
and actual existence. And so, friends, to walk away from God and to turn towards the idols of our lives and the idols of our hearts is to walk towards nothingness. It is to walk towards a, a breath, to something that has no existence, that has no substance to us. And we know that, don't we? When we chase these idols, we know ultimately they never fix it for us. We know they have no substance. We know it's a, it's a figment of our imagination. But man, we seek it. We desire it so often. And we refuse to let God tear down those idols because to do so would hurt really, really bad. It would be giving up something that we really, really have come to cherish in our lives. So friends, here's the real reality, the real reality, that the end reality for all of us and for the whole creation is that God is in His holy temple. Does that mean that God is fixed in one place and sitting on a throne somewhere, probably with a big, long, white beard? No. God is everywhere. What it means is God is where He has always been and always will be. God exists. He is in His holy temple. And when He comes in His wrath, friends, everything is silent before Him. Nothing has a voice. Nothing can speak when God comes as God truly is. Our idols have no substance. They will not last. The story's told of some scholars who got together many, many years ago to try to come up with one phrase, one statement that would be true for all time because everything changes in our world. Could they come up with one statement that would be true throughout all time? And here's the statement that they came up with. And this too shall pass. The statement that is true across all the ages. And this too shall pass. Friends, the day of God's judgment on Babylon was approaching in Habakkuk's day. It was in the future for Habakkuk. In fact, it was so much in the future, he had a hard time wrapping his mind around it because he wanted the Babylonians to be punished for what they were going to do to Judah. But it was so far in the future for them, it was hard for him to imagine. Now, step into our day in 2024 and consider this. What was so hard for Habakkuk to imagine because it was so far in the distance took place 2,000 500 plus years ago, but it seemed unreal for him because it was just too far in the future, which is how we look at so many things in our own lives, right? We're not going to think about our death. Why? Because our death is so far in the future. We're not going to think about the glories of heaven. Why? Because it's so far in the future and there's so much that we have ahead of us today. But someday, all of our future events will be 2,500 plus years in the past. This too shall pass. And therefore, God is our refuge and strength, friends. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, and all the roars and foaming of the waters, we will not fear the psalmist tells us in Psalm 46. 
because there's a river that makes glad the city of God. It's the holy place where God dwells. God is within her. That city will not fall. God will help that city at the break of day. Nations are in uproar, the psalmist says. Kingdoms fall. The earth, the Lord speaks, and the earth falls silent. This is our God. He's weighty. He is substantial. And He is the God who exists. And therefore, friends, when He comes to us, even when He rebukes us, the best decision for us is to do, for those of you who watched Andy Griffith, to do what Barney Fife did so well. Take a lock, right? Be silent. Look what the writer of Ecclesiastes says here. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are do- that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This is what's best for us. To let our words be few and let God do what God does best. And to invite Him, friends, to tear down the idols and the altars in our lives. Because they are finite. Whether they are spiritual, mental, or physical, they simply cannot last. But in Christ is substantiality. In Christ is life and hope and immortality. In Christ is the end of our idolatry and the rising up of the glory of God, that which has weight and is substantial. And so what do we do, friends, in this situation after a hard message like this? We flee to Christ, that's what we do, and in Him we find hope. And the God who exists tells us that we are substantial as well, not because of who we are, but because He sent His Son to die for us on a cross to give us hope, to give us weight, to give us immortality, not in and of ourselves, always derivative, always coming from God, but immortality in Christ, hidden in Christ. That's where we go. We flee to God and we ask Him to tear down the idols and the altars in our own heart and our own lives and to give us something that matters and to give us a hope that is real way off in the distance, but as real as you and me standing here or sitting here today, heaven, where God will reign forever and ever and ever, and where the river of God will make glad our hearts throughout all eternity, friends. Flee from idolatry into the arms of Jesus Christ and ask Him to nail your idols to the cross, friends. He will do it. He's already nailed your sin there. He's perfectly capable of nailing your idols there as well and taking them upon himself. And then you'll know joy, friends. Then you will know joy. You'll know the joy of Adoniram Judson, great missionary of the past, who on his death, but it was asked, Adoniram, are you ready to meet the Lord? And he responded, I depart with the joy of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so free in Christ, he said. That's the joy we can know when the idols are gone and dead and life in Christ becomes a blazing reality for us, friends. Ask God to do that for you. Tear down your altars. 
and exalt Jesus Christ in your life. Amen? Amen. God, I pray that you would help us to do that because we are incapable of doing it on our own. We need the power of Christ in our lives. We may talk about idolatry. Lord God, I may preach about idolatry, but we need you to tear down the altar because we simply will not do it, Lord God. So God, I pray that you would do that hard work in our lives today. I pray that for me. I pray that for everyone in this room. And I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.